in my senior year of high school, my last class of the day was APES, or AP Environmental Science. Do you uh, remember APES? Of course I remember APES, my favorite class. <laughs> I called like, my I friend Sean about this a couple weeks ago. Those folders. Those stupid-ass right? folders. And one day, we were assigned a worksheet, which was basically just busy work. It was just uh, one of those days where he, like, gave us a lab. Or maybe we yeah. were working on our folders. Like, we were doing some worksheet on trees or, or flower, like, I don't know, amphibians, something. Yeah, that, that's, like, I feel like that was a good chunk of what we were doing. It was like something to do with, like, bugs, amphibians, or the ozone layer. <laughs> but while I was working on the sheet, it just hit me. This was pointless. 30 minutes until the bell rings, and it won't matter. Four months until graduation, and it won't matter. Four more years until we graduate from college, and for most of us, it won't matter. Given the average lifespan of a person in the United States and the fact that most of us were 17 at the time, 60.54 years, and we won't matter. I spent the last 30 minutes of class trying to wrap my head around this. I remember being mad. If we're all going to die someday and nothing matters, how are we supposed to spend our time here? And then the bell rang, so I left class in all my misery and started walking to the front of the school. All of a sudden, the only person I see in this swarm of like kids was Madame Topping. Again, oh my out God. of all people. Madame Topping. Remember that name. Madame what a lovely woman. Madame Topping was my French teacher. And I went up to her uh, in passing, didn't say hello, like didn't, uh -huh. nothing. And I was like, Madam Topping, why are we here? What, <laughs> what's the point of all of this? She smiled and said, to spread love. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know why I wouldn't have guessed that otherwise. She'd be like, live, laugh, love. Well, needless to say, that did not solve my existential crisis. I walked home, possibly even more frustrated, but I eventually stopped thinking about it. Until now, two years later, I am 19, and I'm asking the same questions, but this time they're about careers, because that's what we spend most of our life doing, right? After sleep. So, if we're all going to die someday and nothing matters, how do people spend their time here? I would say, listen to your parents. <laughs> this is Robin Kowalski. She is a professor in the psychology department at Clemson University. So in 2018, Professor Kowalski released an article in the Journal of Social Psychology titled, If I Knew Then What I Know Now, Advice to My Younger Self. We all, um, as adults, wish that we could sort of go back in time. And I mean, there's nobody, I don't think, that doesn't wish they could change something. When parents offer advice to their children, the children are at an age where they want to be independent and they want to resist that somewhat. But I think what our study showed is that perhaps that advice is at least worth listening to. So I think that what I would say is that young adults, not just their parents, but other adults should at least hear them and then kind of pick and choose what fits them best. So I took the train up to San Francisco and did exactly that. So, so what do you guys do? For work? Uh, so I am... Software engineer slash entrepreneur. Musician. An attorney. Investment banker. I'm in the paper industry. Industrial designer. I do farm work and winemaking. People say, well, 
How did you get into the paper industry? And it wasn't through Dunder Mifflin. Public policy at the national level. Chemical engineer. And my third one is I run a startup. I'm really interested in creating trauma-informed rehabilitation programs for sex offenders. I had an idea to, have, to open a bakery. So I went to conservatory music in Europe, classically trained um, as a professional musician in flute. You've heard me play flute, yeah. I'm sure. Melodica, piano, vocals. Oh, hallelujah. I've been working with a community garden program. I thought about being a doctor, but... I didn't want to listen to people's problems all day, so I didn't become a psychologist. And I didn't like, or I wasn't good at STEM. And so I didn't do doctor and engineer. And now I'm a biotech attorney who listens to people's problems all day. We have oranges and papayas and... Now I kind of want to be a scientist. Figs and limes and lemons. And math. And math. I like math. Uh, passion fruit and avocados. But I also kind of want to be an author and an artist. Ooh. Pears, peaches. You know, in my high school yearbook, I had my everything planned out. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is I probably did everything in my yearbook down oh. to how many kids I was going to have. Nectarines, uh, plums, we've got a lot of different kinds of fruit trees. I also called some people. Hello. It's being recorded. Oh. Okay, yeah. Hello. Uh, oh, the call is being recorded. Yep. Okay. Yep. Cool. Okay. So that's what this is. What follows are stories of how people spend their time here, what they learned, and given that nothing matters, what matters? I spent most of my adolescence being pretty directionless. This is Matt Kilty. He grew up in Minnesota, lives in New York. I was very bad academically. Starting like fifth, maybe fifth or sixth grade, like I just started doing pretty bad in school in terms of just like my grades and that persisted basically all the way through high school. And uh, I just didn't know what I wanted. I had no idea. I hadn't really conceived of it. I hadn't thought about it. When I was in college, actually in your position right now, I very much relate to having a crisis of not knowing what I wanted to do. Andrew McCormack grew up in South Carolina, went to school in Michigan, hung around New York for a bit, and is now in San Francisco. My problem was that that crisis didn't hit me until I was, like, graduating. I majored in philosophy. I love philosophy. I worked very, very hard at it. But the only real career that leads to is law, because you want to argue like a motherfucker. I really like reading books. I really like stories. And I think at some point, like, I had a sort of fantasy in my head of being a writer or writing. And so when I got to college, I ended up going to the University of Arizona. I didn't think I was going to get into any college, but I surprisingly got into the University of Arizona and Arizona State. Came in undecided. I stayed undecided for, like, a year and a half. Looked into creative writing and English as majors, but I was a little bit too frightened to do either. I was just like, what, like, what is that? life like presumably I'm just gonna teach like high school English or something which I just gone through the experience of being a high schooler and I was like I have no interest spending a career dealing with people like myself I actually almost fell asleep during the LSAT I just I could not wait for it to be over I just there's no part of me wanted to be a lawyer um I went home actually after my freshman year to South Carolina and I was trying to get back together with my girlfriend Mm-hmm. And I got shut down hard. <laughs> and uh, I was kind of heartbroken and moved back up to Michigan. And I didn't have any money, like none whatsoever. I started working in a cafeteria. 
you know, before I was like living off ramen noodles and uh, dining hall and that sort of thing, that was the first time I had to like actually cook for myself. And the uh, first thing I ever made was mashed potatoes. I, I was really proud of it and all that sort of stuff. They were terrible mashed potatoes. I'm much better at it now. Actually, I remember in college writing a, a piece for the, the, all, the Alt Weekly in Tucson called the Tucson Weekly. I was an intern there. Basically, it was like this piece about this co-ed of mine who showed up on the website called The Dirty, wearing like lingerie, and there was some sort of caption that was like really disparaging. And I, I think I, I interviewed the, the founder of the site and talked to her and some other people. And I just remember, like, I remember reading it in the, the paper, like the next day and feeling a sense of, of pride of like, this feels like something, like something took place. Like there's this website that is doing something that feels malicious and kind of like cruel and it has consequences and I'm talking about it. I'm talking to people who are affected by it. That all felt pretty meaningful. It was just like the first time I think I'd ever done that, you know, like 20 years old or something. When I started working in the kitchen, I had not realized before that I was laboring under an assumption that all careers of value had to be either working for a corporation, for the government, or academia, or like being a doctor, you know? Mm. And like, I was happy working with my hands, but I saw something when I did when I finished into my day and there was a physical result from my work. I found great satisfaction in that. that I, I wasn't looking for, I didn't know that, that was the thing that I wanted. And at some point, Ah, at some point, like the idea of journalism popped into my head. And I think for me, I thought like, well, I'll try that. And it seems like I was kind of naive. And I was like, I didn't realize at the time in 2005 that like the industry was going through like a period of complete tumult, just really starting to bleed out from the internet and giving all of its content away for free. But I fell in love with it. Like my, my granddad was a surgeon and he, he, he was the same way. My granddad like liked the, the precision. He liked showing up to work. He liked getting his shit together and being in order and being literally surgical about it. And you know, <laughs> So once I figured that out, that you could do other things, I kind of embraced cooking as a career. Yeah, I just pursued that. Matt went on to work for NPR, This American Life. He went to Uganda on a fellowship, and he's now a senior producer at Radiolab. Andrew went on to work in Michelin star restaurants. He is now the chef and owner of Early to Rise, which is a scratch-made brunch restaurant in San Francisco. Speaking of San Francisco, if you want to go from City Hall to Golden Gate Park, you have to cut through Hayes Valley which is what I did. And there I found Monique, who has had a few careers. So I'm currently on my third. Oh, okay. What were the first two? <laughs> I was, um, my first one, I was an investment banker. Okay. My second one uh, was uh, public policy at the national level. And my third one is I run uh, a startup. I had actually been quite successful. Um, my first career, I was the youngest partner globally. So it definitely wasn't that I didn't think I could achieve. I think it was some of it where is if existential in the sense of thinking like, is this all there is? A lot of people make one career and they're happy. For me, I wanted to make sure I was like exploring all different points, um, but they all parlayed into the other. I think as a um, as a woman, I would say that as I've 
moved up in management. Like, again, being assertive and not really, you know, being a, a leader and what that means and being, you can still be collaborative and supportive and feminine and still be a really good leader. Um, and then the other thing I would just advise is to make sure you get hard skills. I'm a big believer in, even if you didn't want to stay in banking or even if you didn't want to stay certain STEM degrees, like but there's only a certain time in our life it's easier to get the hard skills. And that's the other thing, it's like, it's okay to say, you know, you don't know and you're just trying to figure stuff out. I think that's what, the smarter people and the ones that you admire the most are the first ones who don't let their ego and say, you know what, I don't know. I'm. This is really interesting and I'm gonna try to figure it out. Like, I think when you're 20, you think you have to know everything and I think that's a real big fallacy. I think you don't need to know everything. You need to know how to ask good questions and then not have the ego that you're not listening to the answers. I, if I, I think looking back, you care a lot more what people, their perception of you, because you're still trying to figure out who you is mm -hmm. and who you are and what you want. And I think the confidence you build in your 20s by the time you get to your 40s, you're like, you're just gonna do the best that you can and you surround yourself with people who care about you. But in your 20s, you spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, am I smart enough? Am I good enough? Am I, you know, pretty enough? Am I skinny enough? Or all these things. And I think for a lot of women, if they could have the confidence of their 40s, <laughs> back when they're 20s, we would be probably unstoppable. back to our phone calls what was your experience like with with money uh really brutal i kind of assumed when i started doing journalism i was just like i will never uh and i still won't like i'm never gonna make the amount of money that my mom made at the height of her career in fact i assumed when i got into this i would be making very little money but weirdly podcasting underwent this sort of like revolution and now we we get paid like what media people get paid which is just kind of weird but by no means, and even with all the sort of like financial security I had from coming from the family that I did, uh, by no means was it easy. I was eating like Easy Mac and like half a Subway sandwich every night for dinner and just like watching my checking account completely deplete. And I mean, the whole media writ large and journalism, I think, is, is a challenging industry right now and has been for the past decade where there's, I think jobs can be kind of few and far between and they can also be pretty unstable. I earned nine dollars an hour in manhattan working four 16-hour shifts back to back and then another 10-hour shift after that that isn't just like hard that hurts you to work that much it's it's not good i think that the industry really needs to change from that you you learn a lot i mean you really do i mean when you live with it like that when you're around cooking so much that you you, you wake up and do it all day, every day. I mean, you get a level of comfort with your craft that you can't really get as a part-timer. But I ended up getting a really bad back injury after I moved to San Francisco. I had lots of injuries. I, I, I had a herniated disc. I'll actually never regain full feeling in my right leg. I had uh, hot fryer grease drop down my shoes one time and uh, had third degree burns on both my ankles and needed skin grafts. You know, all the while, you like have nothing. That, that's, that's one of the craziest things. You realize how little control you have of your own life. Like when that happened, like I had 25 bucks a week to live on and I could barely get out of bed. And the reason they had that was because 
you know, that I, I come from this like toxic, toxic masculine kitchen environment where the code was that, you know, oh, the money's not important, blah, blah, blah. So like basically you'd show up at like 10 in the morning or whatever, but you wouldn't actually clock in until like two or something like that. So then when you're going to, when you get hurt and they're going to go calculate how much to pay you, they calculate it based on the hours you were clocked in for. So like, basically I was working for free for all this time. And then when I was out of work, I was screwed. You just feel like a little worm when you can't provide for yourself. That's real. Like when you cannot cover your bills and you need other people to support you and there is nothing you can do about it, that sucks like a lot. You know, but then when you go to try to own place, you know, and then you see why that system is the way that it is, because everything's so goddamn expensive, like the way the city charges for everything. Pork shoulder went up 30% last week for some damn reason. You know what I mean? It was just like, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy the like, well, the way things like add up and the way money moves through a business and stuff like that. So you, you just, you happen to ask about one of the most complicated, sensitive topics in food, which is wages and compensation right now, where, you know, I mean, there's so many, so much baggage with that. Like, I went to the front of the house for a long time and learned to be a server too, which was great. But um, it really is true that the way that we tip in America is a holdover system from not wanting to pay former slaves wages and so that they would receive tips for work instead after emancipation that is true and that's messed up you know what i mean and like it's not far off right now when you have people working minimum wage and to be clear in most of the country minimum wage is like seven dollars an hour and in new york you can actually pay less than minimum wage if someone's receiving tips so like servers over there were making more like 354 dollars an hour plus tips but yeah, money is brutal in food, but you have to find your own way and really advocate for yourself and always like learn to be financially responsible and always push toward ownership. And like, we're all desperate and we're all trying to get by. A lot of times people feel like it's you or me and it's not. That's an illusion created by anxiety and fear, but people do behave that way and you have to watch out for that because they'll still screw you just the same. Okay. You just blew my mind in the past 10 minutes. Jeez, that's... It's a rough world out there, Tanya. I'm serious. It's, not, <laughs> it's, it's, it's fucking crazy. While we were in India, I went to a girls' school. We're back in San Francisco. And in the girls' school, it was like they would be teaching computer science, like programming languages for all the girls. Yeah. So they were trying to get more girls into this, and I, I loved it. So it, it felt like a natural fit and at that time I was not at all lost and then I got into this really, it's a good career for girls actually in computer science but it's just that over time I think I got burnt out, very intense field, um, I just felt like, I, uh, like when I got burnt out I was like okay I just need a short break and then after that I really started questioning you know why does this career have to be so intense and becoming a mom and juggling yeah. that started becoming very difficult for me okay. and then I think I got lost actually <laughs> now I have to figure out what else I want to do and is there something that I can move into that's not so intense all the time mm -hmm. so interestingly I was did you ever think you you made a mistake did you f have feelings of regret 
You know, no. I never really looked at it like that. Like, it's just kind of what you're doing. Uh, there you go. Okay, so I feel like your, your question assumes a standard of success that is involved in monetary gain. And I, I would counsel you to instead think of monetary gain as a sufficient condition or a necessary condition for success, but not a sufficient one. And the reason I say that is because, you know, one of the things that, that I've always scratched my head about is like when I was a server at Spruce, I mean, like Spruce, I don't know if you know the restaurant, but it's in Laurel Heights in San Francisco. And it's like every CEO of all these big companies all live like right there. There's like hella billionaires, hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and venture capitalists and all that sort of shit. Like, you know, it's not uncommon for somebody to get like a burger and a thousand dollar bottle of wine for shit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like not that's like a Tuesday, you know. Yeah. And like, um, it's weird, but like but the thing that I always wondered when you were around those super wealthy people is I was like, Well, we all have like twenty four hours a day. How much better is this person's experience from having a billion dollars instead of having only a hundred million dollars, you know? Yeah. It's like a billion dollars is so so much more than a hundred million dollars. It's incalculable for me to like think about that, but it, it, how much is that going to affect your day-to-day life if you've got that? And then, you know, you just extend the logic down, you know, like, okay, it's like how much does having a hundred million make it better than 10 million and blah, blah, blah. And you do get to a point and um, I actually, I read a study about this, you know, I, what am I talking about? I read some clickbait. <laughs> you know, didn't like read a study, but like, you know, the point was like that, after a certain point, being richer does not make you happier. So my point is, I want to be at that point with a little more. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Live comfortably in the past where it's going to affect its stage. But after that, you know, it's community, it's relationships, it's how happy you are with your work, all that sort of thing. And do not take that shit for granted. That takes work and effort to build, too. And mm-hmm. I think that if I have any regrets, it's that I didn't hang on to a lot of my personal relationships or built them as much during that time because I was working so hard. Less with the money. So I finally reached Golden Gate Park and as I was walking, I stopped this bearded, barrel-chested, beret-wearing man who has an admirable accent originates somewhere in the Soviet Union. I didn't ask, or maybe I'm completely wrong, I don't know, but I asked him if he has any regrets as a software engineer. Uh, yes, uh, to be honest, probably not initially, no. Lately, probably in the last five, seven years, yes. Uh, specifically because kind of there is a little bit of a disillusion. Software kind of just became a, a field which has a lot of money in it on one hand which is great because you can earn them on the other hand which is bad because kind of now it revolves around money more than ideas yeah regret can be good not necessarily not always but it can be good in the form of uh, a signal to you that you have the opportunity to do something different there's an opportunity to change and so it's like a message that you can listen to the voice you just heard is of dr neil rose who's a professor at northwestern and wrote a book called if only which is really all about the, the scientific research that has shown what is the the value or what is the function that regret serves in our lives 
what the regret literature shows. Robin Kowalski again. Is that people tend to regret inactions more than actions. So if you listen to your regret and then think seriously about what new actions you could take, what change in your strategy can you make? That is the value of regret. You know, the downside of it is if you just wallow in things that are impossible to change. But the way to live effectively with regret is to think of it as a message or a signal that you listen to and then you move on. So do you know what you want to change into? <laughs> That's a great question. First of all, probably won't happen immediately. Can I just need to pay bills and small have small kids which needs to kind of just grow up? But after that, I don't know. I had an idea to have, to open a bakery. Right oh. now, it's kind of just a funny idea, but you know, who knows what can happen in seven years. I think you should years. do it. If yep. you want to sign, you should do it. <laughs> I thought about being a doctor, but okay. now I kind of want to be a scientist. So you're into like science and all of that stuff? Yeah, and math. And math. I like okay. math. She's followed you with the STEM. I guess so. But, but I, I also kind of want to be an author and an Ooh. artist. I then asked the kid's mom what advice she would have for her daughter. Oh, I would tell her, do something that she, of course, does like. But I would tell her, like, she should be focusing on something that does involve brain power it could be anything it could be any field but it's not that you're going to wake up every day and be like you know that's, <laughs> you want to you want to have a you know large percentage of your days where you're happy to go to work but like i said nothing's ever written in stone and so what i tell my students is if you pursue a, a direction in life and you know you're like whoa this is not i'm not making a difference this is not doing it for me you can switch horses you don't have to be whatever you major in for the rest of your life. I mean, there's, there's sometimes roadblocks in that. You know, sometimes money becomes a consideration, you know, particularly if you're supporting a family or something like that. But I think where people lose some of the passion that they have is feeling like they are stuck. Um, and then just, you know, what do they say? The, the days are long, but the years are short. So if you want to, you know, I'm probably going to be working till I'm 70. So, you know, I think my next career is like as a university professor. So I think of like, Think of your life as in stages and don't think that you're going to just have one. There's not one act. You probably will have several in your career. Like a good friend of mine graduated with a master's in biopsych, ended up going to go get his degree as a doctor in philosophy. And he, he teaches two classes and he gets paid to be a philosopher in Korea now. Yeah, you know I mean, and like, yeah, it's just like impossible. It's just people do random shit. Like, it's... the the advice I can only offer from my own experience is just like figure out what it is. Like, just be like really aware and mindful of when you find yourself being really drawn to something or excited about something, and um, obsessively pursue the thing that you want. You know, I, I'm not a fan of everything this guy says, but Bill Maher had this one expression that really stuck with me. It was like, life is really a bar fight. You pick up whatever is next to you and you swing as hard as you fucking can. I don't know. It could break you, but it can also it can also <laughs> totally pay off. A lot of people's behavior um, or lack thereof is driven by fear. You know, they're afraid of 
pursuing a certain career, for example, um, the, the imposter phenomenon sets in and they're like, oh, I'm not good enough for that. Or, you know, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to get a job in that field or I wouldn't get accepted to law school or medical school or graduate, whatever it is. You know, there's, there's this internal voice that's that putting these barriers and these, these block, these roadblocks in their way. So then later on in life, they, they look back and they're like, oh, would have, should have, could have. So they're regretting those inactions. I think it's our fear. I think it's our anxiety. And I see so much anxiety among young people today, at least the ones that I come across, that I think really sets up those roadblocks. So my advice there would be, as long as nobody's getting hurt by, you know, go try to try to tame that inner voice and, and go for what you want. Which isn't to say that you're going to ultimately obtain the thing that you so deeply desire if it's something that's like very specific, like I want to work at this place or like be covering this thing. But I don't know. My guess is that in that pursuit, you wind up doing something that feels pretty fulfilling or aligned with that thing that you set out to do. So, you know, you make the best choice with the information that you have. And, you know, if it works out, great. And, you know, if it doesn't, you learn something. I just don't cry about it too much, you know? It's like nobody promises a bed of roses, you know? It's going to suck. It's never going to be awesome. Whatever. It's like, it's like, it's fine, you know what I mean? Wait, wait, wait. We still have to at least try and answer this meaning of life question. This call is being recorded. Hello. Oh. Hello. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, Tanya. How are you? I'm good. Can you hear me fine? So really, who I else would I call you. other than Madam Topping to start this one off? I just got back from Mexico. I was there for a week. <laughs> and I caught her up to speed. It was my senior year. I was in my sixth period class. We were doing some busy work or something. And at one point, it just hit me that everything is pointless. Like we're all going to die one day and none of this matters. And then I got kind of angry about it. And I spent like the last 30 minutes of class just being like, why are we, why are we here? And not, not just in school. Like, why are we, why are we on earth? Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, you know, bell rang 3 PM school was over. I left and then you were walking like towards my, yeah, like you were walking in my direction mm-hmm. and I like TA'd for you and everything. So I was like, I'll, you know, I'll ask, I'll ask Madam Topping. So I, I think, <laughs> I think I came up to you and I didn't even say hello. Like there was no formal, like there was nothing. And I was just like, Madam Topping, what's, what's the meaning of life? <laughs> Why are we here? Can, can you guess what you said? Oh my God. I've been trying to think I have no idea I would say I mean today I would say like to love and be loved make the world a better place <laughs> I have no idea it, it, it was along those lines so you said to spread love that's pretty good you just said that and you like walked away I was like, oh, okay, like, all right, I'm meta topping. I, I needed objective advice here. But those words in the past, I don't know, two years since that happened were just in the back of my head whenever I thought of the meaning of life because it's, like, so small and it's, like, to spread love. And I was like, huh, you know what, maybe maybe Madam Topping was, maybe Madam Topping was right. Um, do, you, do you still believe that? And if you do, why? 
you know, we do, we do have one friend that's just super generous. She's like a VP of whatever. She's a VP of human resources. <laughs> um, whatever. And she, yeah. Okay, and this is her name, Rebecca Sunshine. That's her real name. Oh, my God. I've met all the Sunshine family. Her dad's a doctor. You know, they, ha- they do have money. They're from Atherton. Um, but they're no. all sunshines. And she is, like, such a sunshiny person. And um, it, it's just so funny because you see her and she smiles and she hugs and and she just gives. You know, like, oh, I like your your necklace. Oh, here, take it. <laughs> you know, it, you know. Oh, you look so good in that scarf. Here, take it. You know, or you know, she she would buy you a drink without you asking, or she's bought us tickets to concerts like over and over again. You know, another thing this woman taught me. She's like, oh, you know what I always do? I always pay for the person behind me when I'm at the toll booth. <laughs> You know, when we used to have to stop and pay the toll, she would pay oh, for God. the toll behind her. It'd be like no one, you know. And then when you get yeah. a, a present like that, you're like, oh, my God, how great, you know. She's just so generous, and it's just to spread love. Like, do you think some people are just biologically happier than others? Because, I don't know, I just don't imagine myself being that. Like, how do you reach that point of just being sunshine well I'm sure I'm sure she's not totally happy all the time like she's been through she's had a bout with cancer and all that and a divorce so it's not like she's you know everything goes for her all the time but I think there's a little bit of fake it till you make it also you know do something nice and see what it feels like even though it doesn't it seems forced because it, it is, uh, it snowballs. John Stuart Mill had this quote that always, always stuck with me, where he's kind of summing up what ancient philosophers thought it was a good life. And he said, not a life of rapture, but moments of such, with few and transitory pains, many and various pleasures, and taking as the foundation of the whole not to expect more from life than it is capable of bestowing. The idea is that you think about utility, you think about good as an abstract thing. And for me, the thing that keeps screwing my head on correctly is just being like, how can I create the most good in this situation? And part of that means taking care of myself. You know, it really does. I mean, like, what I'm, believe you me, it matters that I'm happy. <laughs> I'm not saying that I'm some altruist completely. Quite the opposite. It matters to me a lot that I'm happy, you know. Mm-hmm. And like, when I have the opportunity to make someone else happy. I have a moral obligation to take it. It's not all about us individually. It's about us in community with other people. And I like to think that I've thought about this on some level beforehand, but you know, how can we go about making other people feel like they are significant? And what are the implications when we go about consciously or unconsciously making people feel like that they are not? So I have to digress for a second and, and tell you about what happened to me the other day. My mom's most shopped at store consistently for the past like three or five years, and I know this because there's data that supports it, is TJ Maxx. We go to TJ Maxx a lot, and God, this sounds like a sponsorship. It's not. I don't get sponsored. We go to TJ Maxx a lot, 
And as I grew older, my hatred for TJ Maxx got stronger. But last week, I gave in, as I, as I do, and agreed to go to TJ Maxx with my mom. And in the car, I was reading an essay, and I read this passage, and suddenly something changed. I was now, for a brief moment, kind of ecstatic to be going to this department store. I felt like the luckiest person ever to get to be going to TJ Maxx. This essay was written by a man named Dev Hathaway, a nonfiction writer and English professor. He died of cancer in 2005. This call is being recorded. Hello? Hello? Hi. Hi. <laughs> Tanya. Hi. Yeah, sorry. Okay, the, there's like a guy that has to say this call is being recorded every single time. So I reached out to his daughter, Marie Hathaway. I don't know. To me, the adults I grew up around were very much in the like liberal arts college sphere. It was my parents and their friends who were professors. And it was a very like humor and language drenched upbringing. And my parents were also really into nature and gardening, which was another mm -hmm. like major undercurrent of my childhood. I mean, we talked about growing up without a religion, but honestly, like I feel like nature was the religion in our household. And I think about my dad, like I know in his 20s to 30s, he was very wandering around. Uh, he like dropped out of college, was in the Navy for a little while, then was like subsistence farming in Virginia, uh, mm. got married a couple of times. And then like, yeah, didn't go to grad school until he was like almost 40, met my mom there and things clicked into place. But not until, yeah, not until pretty late, I think, in life late bloomer he wrote this piece about uh having cancer and getting ready to die but i guess drinking up life in the meantime i should yeah. turn on the light it's getting dark okay <laughs> meditation too now then best beloved in cancer's first bloom that shock and awe phase i see colors intensely primary mainly red blue and especially yellow a mug on the windowsill glows like an icon. Daffodils, wonders. Holy mortality, jumping Jehoshaphat. In so many moments, sharp and binocular, things razor clear and layered one on another. Indeed, time collapses. One day, after needles and nuclear Kool-Aid, I have an afternoon off and take a magnified drive to the hardware emporium. Clouds slide up mountains, making the illusion that the ridgelines are cresting. Highway signs loom, glow, giant, and flee, trailing flares of strange letters, and no cop pulls me over. At the home supply warehouse, blue pipes and hanging lights run high over shelves that themselves need ladders. Home expert associates in snappy red vests glide up and down aisles. Think I'll have a dozen of that six-by southern pine and a pallet of cedar for the back porch we're building. Outside, the parking lot in a sudden burst of sun makes a grand panorama. A vendor standing under a striped yellow awning hawks gargantuan pretzels. I spring for one and a Coke to go with and stride to my car in all of God's glory. Yay. <laughs> yeah, Yay. I love that one. <laughs> it's funny, like, he's been gone for so long, but the older I get, the more of him I like discover in myself 
more and more lately, I just kind of like let myself talk to him like he's there a little bit or like voiced him talking to me lately, (laughs) lately, like that voice of Dev in my head has been like encouraging me to like prioritize my health and be a little more practical, follow through on my commitments. <laughs> so this world makes no sense. We contradict ourselves every day. I mean, my time watching four movies back to back on a 24 hour flight will not feel wasted, but an hour shopping at TJ Maxx with my mom absolutely will. Hindus and Muslims will joyously sing along to 17th century Sufi poets when they sing about breaking down mosques and temples because God actually resides in our hearts. But those same people pick up arms and line corpses down roads in the name of those same temples and mosques. And there's so many other contradictions and juxtapositions or or paradoxes or whatever. I have the most capacity to hurt the ones I love the most. I treat strangers better than I treat my family. The more time I spend with a person, the more I'll probably start hating them. I romanticize almost all things and cultures and people that I know absolutely nothing about. And I do good deeds for other people mainly because it makes me feel better about myself. Even religion, I know religion was made by other humans. I know it's a story, a collective delusion, a shared myth. And I don't know if I consider the sculptures of gods in my house or in temples anything more than stone. But sometimes I find myself talking to them. I know my uncle was killed a decade before I was born. But sometimes I feel like he's silently judging me. And there's these other contradictions and weird things that happen. Like, my day could be completely horrible. Nothing could go right for me. Everything could be absolutely terrible. But then there'll be a moment where the sun has set and the yellow lamps are on and my heartbeat is normal and the day is over and I'll sit down with my mom to watch Indian Trash television and for a moment, everything is perfect. And even though I think that God is a myth and everything is man-made, I'll say, God damn it, God. (laughs) You've done it again. So the first step is realizing that this world doesn't make sense. The very action of me trying to make sense out of all of this is nonsense. But I'm still going to add one more contradiction to the list, and I'm going to try to make sense of it anyway. So what keeps us here? That's a really beautiful question. Um, the the word that's coming to mind is people. When I was growing up, you know, my dad was in business and Actually, we've talked about this recently. Dad, these guys, you know, dad was around a lot of super rich people that he worked for and all this sort of thing. And they'd go around with their cars and their helicopters or whatever and, you know, all this sort of shit. But then, you know, you know these guys over the course of an entire life, they, a lot of them, I mean a shitload of them, like, their marriages fell apart, their Mm. kids were weird, you know what I mean? Like, it was just like, I don't want to be these people. They are selfish, and it just doesn't work. Like, they just aren't happy. Like, you know what I mean? It just doesn't, this is, they were wrong about 
coming home and like you got you got no relationship with your children, your marriage is on the rocks or distant or something like that, or you're not really being honest with who you are to your people and don't have anybody you can call up and get a beer with, like what do you have? The making of this podcast is pointless. You listening and me speaking, both of us, we're going to die someday. And our memories will die with us, and through the years, all the people we know will also die, taking their memories of us with them, and soon enough, it's like we never existed. But watch me, watch me rationalize this podcast. Sure, that apes worksheet, it was pointless. But the interaction with Madame Topping wasn't, because her words stuck. They led me to make this story after two years, and from the story, I met a lot of people that I won't forget for a while, and maybe one of those people whose face I shoved a mic in in Golden Gate Park won't forget me too. And that's the story I'll tell myself. Is it worthwhile to stop and think why we're living? I think it could help. That's my friend Elijah. If you find a reason to live or something, something to motivate you, life becomes a little bit easier in the sense that you're not trying to accomplish everything, you're trying to accomplish that singular thing. So let's say your mission is to spread love. That is your individual life purpose. Then you're going to start making moves towards spreading love. You're going to, like, you'll go out, you'll help, and you'll be satisfied in having lived your life that way because that was your own life purpose. But if you don't have one and you never stop to take the time to think about what your life purpose is, or if it's too broad, then you're never really going to be happy. And what I really mm. think brings people happiness is making a difference in the lives of other people. I think that's one reason that I love what I do is, you know, I don't delude myself that I'm making a difference with every student that I teach. In fact, I know that I don't. But um, it's a matter of making a difference for one person or, you know, exposing them to information that they might not have been exposed to otherwise. That brings me such happiness. That brings me such joy. Okay, so, so far, the things that make up life, the things that matter, are people, the stories we tell ourselves. And and thirdly, I think it's the world. Has anybody ever recommended Alan Watts to you? Or do you know Alan Watts? Uh, no, I don't. I always think that the book of Job is the most profound book in the whole Bible. White guy in the 70s <laughs> who, like, introduced hippies to, like, Eastern thought. But here is the problem of the man, the righteous man, who has suffered, and uh, all his friends try to rationalize it and say, well, you must have suffered because uh, you really had a secret sin after all and deserve the punishment of God, or because uh, rationalize it somehow. And when they've had their say, the Lord God appears on the scene and says, who is this that darkeneth counsel with words without knowledge? And then proceeds to ask Job and his friends, a series of absolutely unanswerable conundrums, pointing out all the apparent irrationality and nonsense of his creation. Why, for example, he said, do I send rain upon the desert where no man is? Most commentators on the book of Job end with the remark that, well, this poses the problem of suffering and the problem of evil, but doesn't really answer it. And yet in the end himself, Job seems to be satisfied. He realizes that somehow these very questions are the answer. I think of all the commentators on the book of Job, the person who came closest to this point was old G.K. Chesterton. He once made the glorious remark that it is one thing 
to look with amazement at a gorgon or a griffin, a creature who doesn't exist. But quite another thing to look at a, pot a hippopotamus, a creature who does exist and looks as if he doesn't. In other words, this strange world, with its weird forms, like hippopotami, and when you look at them from a certain point of view, stones and trees and water and clouds and stars, when you look at them from a certain point of view and don't take them for granted, they're as weird as any hippopotamus. They are just plain improbable. And it is in this sense, I think, that it is this participation in the essential, glorious nonsense that is at the heart of the world. But it seems that only in moments of unusual insight and illumination that we get the point of this and find that thus the true meaning of life is no meaning, that its purpose is no purpose, and that its sense is nonsense, but that has in it rhythm, fascinating complexity. It is in this kind of meaninglessness that we get the profoundest meaning. It's not the answer to everything, and it's not, yeah. I mean, he's still a white guy, I don't know, but aren't they all? Yeah. <laughs> You know, since we're being really quote happy today, uh, one, of the one of my favorite teachers in college said from this dude, uh, Hesiod, and he said, uh, the ancient philosopher, a real good one, and he said, the goods on the road of life lie to the right and to the left, and to go toward one means to go away from the other. There's no end. You know, there's, there is no final answer. You just make your choices and do your best. I mean, what I'm doing is just trying to tell you is that I've had to make those choices and you know you live with them. And yes, like I've struggled financially a lot, but you know, I, I have a lot of things that a lot of other people don't have. And does it make up for it? I have no idea because I don't know anyone else's experience. Uh, yeah, man. No, that's really, that is really like a thing <laughs> that I know now. I mean, I'm a person I've always struggled with like depression and anxiety. And I realized more recently that a lot of anxiety comes from thinking that I know what's happening. Like, I think I know what someone thinks about me, or I think I know what's wrong in a situation. Like, you don't know what you don't know. Remember the myth of Sisyphus? If you don't, Sisyphus was this guy from Greek mythology who defied death a couple times, so the gods condemned him to roll a rock up a hill. And as soon as the rock reached the top of the hill, it would slide right back down to Sisyphus's side, and he had to do that for all eternity. To quote Camus, the gods had thought for some reason that there is no more dreadful punishment than futile and hopeless labor. Isn't this our condition? What I was thinking when you were talking about the story from mythology is that, you know, that's a person in isolation. And that, that is so important. Sisyphus was alone. And, and I thought, like the first time I read that story, I thought, yeah, I am Sisyphus. But he was alone. And we're not. It's all of us pushing this stupid rock up together. And I think that's what gives us this meaning we're looking for all the time. 
pushing that rock up through whatever venue we choose. Volunteering, parenthood, son or daughterhood, friendship, relationships, or, if we're lucky, our careers. So yes, 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 there is no meaning to life. And there's a whole lot of suffering. I mean, there's a lot. And yes, it's all futile because we will perish someday, blah, blah, blah. But things which I know now for sure that are here are stories, people, this random world with its weird quirks, and that stupid rock for us to push. And I think for me, I think that's enough. So, but what does this have to do with careers? (laughs) This episode was produced by me, Tanya Chavla. Yes, I'm changing my last name. Not that it matters. Mental assistance while working on this came primarily in the form of Elijah Shankar, who you actually heard. Because people eat up big shit. Without whose clarity and edits, this episode would have been absolute bonkers, even more so than it already is. If you want to check out things that were mentioned, restaurants, books, God, what else? People, there will be links in the description. And I had no place to put this in the actual episode, but I was reading this essay called The Pain Scale by Eula Biss. And there's an excerpt which I thought was really beautiful, but I had no place to put it, so here it is. Seven is the largest prime number between zero and ten. Out of all numbers, the very largest primes are unknown. Still, every year, the largest known prime number is larger. Euclid proved the number of primes to be infinite, but the infinity of primes is slightly smaller than the infinity of the rest of the numbers. It is here, exactly at this point, that my ability to comprehend begins to fail.